Good morning, TPNers. Welcome to another episode of the Pilot Network Podcast. I'm Joe, your host for today's show. Today's conversation is with Dr. Catherine Cavagnaro. Catherine is the owner of Ace Aerobatic School in Sewanee, Tennessee, where she teaches aerobatics, spin training, upset training, etc. to students from all around the world. She was even sought out by members of the Embraer flight test team for her expertise in this area. She's an FAA designated pilot examiner, have conducted over a thousand check rides. From 2004 to 2008, she was a test pilot, spin demonstration pilot, researcher, and visiting professor of aviation systems at the University of Tennessee Space Institute. She's a former world record holder for having done 60, that's six zero consecutive spins in an airplane. In 2022, she was inducted into the National Flight Instructor Hall of Fame. She's a 2018 inductee into the Tennessee Aviation Hall of Fame, and her accolades go on for miles. Rest assured, these are just the wave tops. She holds all of the certificates, all of the ratings, and by the way, this is all done in her spare time because she is a full-time professor of mathematics at Sewanee University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Mathematics from Santa Clara University, a PhD in Mathematics from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Catherine's the author of the Flying Smart column in AOPA Pilot Magazine, a regular on the Aviation News Talk podcast with Max Trescott, and a highly sought-after aviation speaker. In today's episode, we dig into a number of different things, including her time at the University of Tennessee Space Institute, where she flew the Variable Stability Navion. If you don't know what that is, stick around, we'll tell you. We also dig into a number of commonly held aviation myths. This is a bit of a specialty area for Catherine. She does a great job of taking things that we thought we knew a lot about, breaking it down, looking at it with open eyes and a critical mind. One note before we get going, much of Catherine's work is indeed in general aviation, but don't be confused. The concepts that she teaches and the work that she does applies to every airplane and every mission. So if you're not in the GA world, fear not, stick around, have a listen, and please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Catherine Cavagnaro. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Joe. It's a pleasure. I have been really excited for this conversation. I've been having a ton of fun getting caught up on all of your work articles and talks and all of that. And I was wondering if we could start by talking about the variable stability Navion, that airplane and that project. Could you explain what that's all about? Sure. Yeah. So uh, the University of Tennessee Space Institute used to have a, a pair of Navions. And these Navions years ago were equipped with extra actuators. Um, and they had, they had um, for example, um, one of them had extra actuators on all three axes. The one that I flew um, had extra actuators on uh, the, the elevator. So in terms of longitudinal characteristics, you could use that to simulate uh, other aircrafts, uh, other aircraft in terms of, you know, their longitudinal stability or not, for example. So uh, actually, should we back up and talk about what longitudinal stability is? Sure. So suppose you're flying an airplane 
and say it gets bumped by a gust of wind or maybe somebody hits the controls, uh, there tends to be two fundamental, um, fundamentally independent oscillations that end up occurring uh, because of that. The first is a long period oscillation, and that's characterized by um, constant angle of attack, changing altitude and airspeed. Uh, it's, it's also called a, called a fugoid oscillation, but uh, that long period, for example, in the planes that I fly, the, the period, in other words, from pitch up to pitch up, tends to be like 25 seconds, somewhere in there. So uh, it's a very long oscillation, long period. Yeah. And the idea is that, you know, an, an ordinary pilot could actually go ahead and um, have those oscillations settle down or help those os oscillations uh, settle down pretty easily. Uh, interestingly, our airplanes do not have to have stable uh, fugoid oscillations. And again, that idea is that just an average pilot can help that airplane um, settle down. But most of the airplanes that we fly actually do have a stable uh, oscillation, meaning that if you did nothing and just let the airplane do what it wants to do, then it's going to settle down all by itself. Um, but it doesn't have to be stable. The other one is called a short period oscillation, and it is a changing angle of attack and constant airspeed. And uh, part 23 and 25 certifications uh, mandate that that actually be stable. Uh, it's a very short period. For example, in my airplanes, it's, it's less than a second is the period of that oscillation. And if you were to fly an airplane that does not have a stable uh, short period oscillation, it would be like trying to stand on a basketball. So uh, not only does the FAA mandate that our airplanes have a stable short period oscillation, they mandate that it be heavily damped. In other words, you hardly notice an oscillation um, uh, when, you know, when you excite that. So, and you can do it in your own airplane, just fly along and kind of um, hit the controls, like uh, hit the control yoke or, or stick and uh, naturally it'll settle down very quickly. Now, you can take an airplane that actually has a stable uh, short period oscillation and have it go unstable if you fly around in icing conditions. In fact, that's what happened to, there's a, a famous uh, accident a few decades ago uh, over Roselawn, Indiana. And uh, there was a, um, can't remember the carrier, uh, but they were in a holding pattern over Roselawn, Indiana, uh, trying to get an approach into Chicago. And they were in icing conditions and uh, they built up uh, a lot of ice and you could hear on the cockpit voice recorder, you could hear the, the um, pitch trim. Uh, oh, they were on autopilot in the holding pattern and you could hear the pitch trim, you know, beep, the, you know, you can hear the pitch trim trying to move and keep up. And by the time they took that plane off uh, autopilot, they lost control of the airplane. So these are very difficult to control, uh, virtually impossible. Okay, so now let's flash back to University of Tennessee Space Institute. I had the pleasure of um, having as a mentor in that work over there, a fellow whose name is Rich Renato, and he was um, a NASA pilot. He actually led the uh, icing research at um, NASA Lewis, where they used to fly the Twin Otter in icing conditions. Mm -hmm. And um, so he brought those data down to University of Tennessee Space Institute, 
and the math problem was the following. We have this um, Navion, okay, and it has its own stability characteristics. What we wanted to do is in a longitudinal sense, have that Navion be exactly like the Twin Otter. Okay, so it would have the same stability characteristics in terms of, you know, long period and short period oscillations, and including when it was covered up in ice. So the math problem was trying to figure out how to set up the potentiometers in the airplane so that it would have those characteristics. And then the fun part was we would get in the plane and go fly it and gather the data to make sure that we got the math problem correct. In other words, that it really did have the stability characteristics of the NASA Twin Otter, uh, including when it was unstable. Yeah, I actually wanted to uh, jump in there because I found a comment on a of all things, a thread on Reddit about okay. the stability of this airplane. There's actually a subreddit called Weird Wings, and somebody posted a photograph of this airplane going, what is this thing? And <laughs> somebody commented, and they said, I was fortunate to be a grad student at UTSI when the ARA was rebuilt and helped get it to its first flight. Uh, got to fly it for about an hour, and it was truly an incredible experience. Pitch captures with baseline navigation controls, easy. Pitch captures with no pitch damping, hello PIO. I think I learned more about stability and control in that one hour than I did in my undergrad. So oh, that's terrific. I haven't seen that. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. Yeah. I was really happy when I happened to cross that, but I know that you um, spent some time in that airplane and that relates pretty directly to some of that, that work. It sure does, yeah. So um, the fun problem is that Rich and I, uh, or the fun work was Rich and I got to be the test pilots to go out to make sure that we got it right. So, you know, cool. we were flying this unstable airplane around. And then once we got that uh, verified, we went and flew instrument approaches with an unstable short period uh, oscillation. And that's honestly where I first learned about a PIO, which is, this is really embarrassing. Okay, so at the time I was a flight instructor and when I learned to fly, my instructors were absolutely militant, you know, uh, on my approach speed, you know, 61 is not 60 or, you know, 76 is not 75, whatever my approach speed uh, happened to be. And so I became so militant about my approach speed. I never, I had never been in a PIO. All right. Well, like, like your uh, author there now jump to the Navion and you're flying instrument approaches with an airplane that is uh, wild. And I, here I am trying to find the, fly this approach and this airplane, you know, has a mind of its own and I'm trying to get it to settle down and I'm having a lot of trouble doing it. And so I'm just, Rich at one point looked at me and said, you know, Catherine, you're kind of working away over there. <laughs> I said, uh, yeah, I am. And he said, do you not know how to recover from a PIO? And I, and I sat there for a minute, you know, I could BS something, but <laughs> with an airplane that's just kind of going crazy. I'm not going to do that. So I just said, uh, I'd love some advice if you have some. And he said, you know, you, what you should do is you should stop trying to rectify the situation, freeze the yoke. And if you are in an airplane that actually has a stable uh, short period or fugoid oscillation, whatever the case may be, you can rely on that inherent stability for the airplane to settle itself. In my case, I couldn't rely on that because I had an unstable airplane. So um, he just said, freeze the controls and now make you know more careful, just judicious inputs 
And with that advice, I was actually able to fly the uh, instrument approach. But I want to point out too that even though I ultimately flew instrument approaches with this thing, um, I knew I was flying an unstable airplane, right? So I come with the mindset that, okay, this airplane's going to be wild. You know, I'm going to um, uh, fly this approach. But the, the trouble with flying in icing conditions is that when they get into them, like the pilots of the plane over Roselawn, Indiana, um, you know, they didn't know they were flying an unstable airplane. So imagine the surprise they get when they take the airplane off autopilot. Um, we actually had a couple of test pilots who had real trouble flying the airplane. Um, translation that they had, we had to take the, the stability system off. Um, so, and these are people who knew they were flying an unstable airplane. So, you know, the mere mortals of us out there flying in icing conditions should really be careful because, uh, you know, we could get a surprise with which we, you know, have trouble um, dealing with. Sure. So if you get into ice, get out kind of is the old, the old adage, right? Right. And, you know, I think some people, especially as an examiner, you know, I talk to a lot of people who are who are flying little airplanes and they're so excited about, uh, you know, getting into the bigger airplanes and, you know, the ones that are Fiki equipped and all of that. And, you know, what I try to impart on these people is that, you know, those systems are typically what you're using when you're trying to extract yourself from the situation. You know, you're not typically just flying around in horrible icing conditions relying on this, uh, this system. So, you know, whether you're flying a, um, a Boeing or a, you know, a bonanza like I do, icing deserves our respect. For sure. Maybe flight through known icing, not so much flight in known icing kind of right. idea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, yeah. the idea of freezing the controls is interesting. This is something that even though it's very fundamental in small airplanes, it certainly applies in airliners as well. In fact, at my airline, I fly the Airbus and we, a couple of years ago, we started talking about uh, a high bounce. And essentially what would happen is people would get into a high bounce, would attempt to pull to recover. And I know you've talked about people being spring-loaded to push and we might get to that, but right. um, people would pull to recover to arrest the descent and have a tail strike. And the actual response should be, we've you know now been trained, uh, freeze the controls, put in the power, go around. So this... Right these fundamentals certainly fold in um, no matter the airplane uh, that we're flying. I wanted to move, uh, we talked a little bit about the math problem involved with that airplane and that work you did at UTSI. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about your mathematics origin story. And the reason I'm curious is that mathematics more than any other, I think, kind of school topic uh, nobody seems to be agnostic about it. Everybody seems to have some positive or negative. And I'm just curious, where did it become more than just a topic in school? And where did you say, I really want to devote my time and my career to studying mathematics? Gosh, that's, that's uh, boy, I could probably go on for a few hours. But uh, so when I grew up, my uh, father, by the way, I was first generation in college. So uh, my my father, while he didn't have a, a college degree, he had a fascination with mathematics. You know, we would go out to restaurants uh, when we were kids and much to my mother's uh, annoyance, he would always be doodling on napkins. 
And he would, he, at the end of the meal, he would present to me, this is the world's most perfect number because it's, you know, it has, and he would rattle off all of the characteristics that it had. So, you know, he had <laughs> just had this fascination with numbers and number theory, even though he really had no training in uh, mathematics. But, you know, that always stuck with me. Um, I think uh, I have uh, two sisters and I, my dad always wanted a boy and I was the closest thing he got. Um, so I, I always like to hang out with my dad. And uh, so that just really made an impression, an impression on me that the joy he had with numbers in mathematics. And, you know, that was certainly one of the areas in which I tended to excel. And this is kind of a funny story, but so when I was in high school, I could do my math homework listening to music and I love listening to music, but I can't listen to music and read a book. I can't listen to music mm. and write an essay. Uh, but so that was a lot of fun to me is the idea that I could listen to music and that one thing I love about mathematics is it, every, every problem is like a puzzle. And when you figure out what the puzzle is, you, you know it. Right. So a paper, anytime you write an essay, you know, you could always go back and make it better. Uh, but math, you either solve the problem or you didn't. And I, I really liked that kind of closure you had uh, and that it was just seemed like a, a game. Um, so when I was in college, I uh, studied that and my intent was uh, to actually go be an actuary. And one of my college professors pulled me aside at graduation and just said, oh, no, 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 you need to go to graduate school. And I had, you know, every intention on moving to Chicago and being an actuary. And he said, oh, no, 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 you need to go to graduate school. So he basically picked up the phone, called his alma mater and said and put the phone down a few minutes later. And he said, you're in. So I, <laughs> I moved to uh, Champaign. Actually, by the way, he was a very famous mathematician. So when he said something like that, it was it was pretty flattering. Uh, so I ended up, I had no money and I was, because I was going to move to Chicago, be an actuary, <laughs> you know, money wasn't going to be a problem. So I worked in a machine shop that summer and uh, got money together, scraped money together to move to Champaign-Urbana. And Champaign-Urbana had a flight school. So when I moved to Illinois, I saw, gosh, you know, I'd always been fascinated by airplanes and I thought, you know, wow, you, you mean I could learn to fly? I really wasn't aware of the general aviation airport there uh, or, you know, before I moved there. And I went out to the airport to try to sign up for flying lessons and it didn't take a math PhD to figure out that I couldn't afford it on my salary. Uh, so I kind of filed it away. And so while I was doing my math graduate work, um, and by the way, I, I love mathematics. I did my dissertation in low dimensional geometric topology, which you know, never built a better bridge, but it is a beautiful subject in mathematics. Uh, but I would do my homework at the airport uh, and I would get pizzas delivered to me in the rental return parking lot while I did my homework out there. Yes, yeah, so I was just gobsmacked with airplanes. And then when I got a job uh, as a math professor out of graduate school, I did notice that this uh, place that was really interested in me had an airport on its campus and it's to to date i've only found one other liberal arts college that has an airport on its campus and that's in northern california so i live in suwanee now i uh, still when i got here i still couldn't afford to learn to fly 
but right after I got tenure in uh, May of 99, I got tenure on May 5th, May 19th, I had my first son and I did what anybody else would do. I walked straight out to the airplane or airport and I signed up for flying lessons. Um, so that's kind of like in a nutshell how I ended up getting interested in uh, mathematics and that it's sort of a, it, it turned out to be a springboard for aviation because uh, when I was uh, learning to fly, uh, Bill Kirshner, who was a big aviation author and the aerobatic instructor, I just dumb luck, I happened to learn to fly at the airport he was based. And um, so he took an interest in me because of my math background. And so I would help him with some of the math in his books. His books tend to be a little more technical than others. And in fact, he is the one who took me over to the Space Institute. Uh, so, you know, what a fantastic mentor. Um, and it was at the Space Institute that they let me take grad classes in um, aeronautical engineering and aviation systems uh, while I was working for them. So I think Bill Kirshner is the one who helped me combine my math and aviation uh, into just, you know, looking back on it, I could have never predicted that that is what I would do. But uh, to me, math is not as interesting without aviation and honestly aviation is just not as interesting to me were it not for mathematics that the lens through which i try to understand um, aviation i'm i'm so glad uh that i asked the question and i really appreciate the answer because uh, there's a couple interesting things there one this idea of having a problem and just doing what it takes to find the truth. And I, I'm going to ask you in a moment about equal transit theory, because that it seems like <laughs> your venture down that road started kind of that way. But I have to pull the thread on this. Uh, if you don't mind, the professor that said, no, uh, you're not going to be an actuary. You have to go to grad school. Um, who, If you don't mind saying, who was that professor? And what do you think that he or she saw in you to... Uh, say, no, you should go to grad school. What was that, the impetus for that? Well, gosh, so his name was Paul Halmos. And uh, mathematicians, if you say Paul Halmos to a mathematician, uh, they, they know who he is. And I went to Santa Clara University for my undergraduate work. And he, um, he was teaching there uh, when, when I went there. And, you know, I'm not sure what he saw. I, I'm not sure I was that <laughs> impressive, but... <laughs> He, um, I loved his classes, and when he would go out of town, he would ask me to teach his classes. So that was that was a real charge, and he must have seen something in me uh, to to ask me to do that. But I actually had a lot of fun teaching his classes. Um, so I'm just really grateful for. I mean, believe me, being an actuary. <laughs> That, that would have been fantastic. Who knows? Maybe I would have been able to afford to fly sooner. But uh, <laughs> I, you know, looking back on it, you know, so when I started flying, I just it was like it was like this release. I, and it's something I wanted so badly for all my life. And when I finally got to learn to fly, it was just it, it was amazing. So I kind of think that since I didn't start earlier, you know, I, I like to say I'm making up for lost time. I, I think I appreciate it more because I know what my life is like without it. Um, and, you know, I, as an actuary, I probably wouldn't have had the 
um, you know, the, the knowledge, you know, the physics knowledge and the, you know, the mathematical knowledge to understand uh, airplanes as well as I do today. And, you know, the thing is, uh, to me, I'm always learning. There's a lot I don't know. There's way more that I don't know than, than I do. But it, to me, aviation is really fun because, you know, I'm constantly taking a deep dive, trying to figure something out. And, uh, and so that's a lot of fun for me. It seems like the folks who make the best students often make the best teachers and vice versa. So I think that there is a really distinct uh, connection there. And I find your teaching to be incredibly clear and compelling. And with that said, I am going to pull the cord on my life fist here with mathematics because I'm quickly going to get out of my depth. But I, I appreciate <laughs> the answer to to that last question as well. I was wondering now if we could transition and talk a little bit about equal transit theory, what we might think we know and what we really should know about it. Right. So uh, I first encountered the equal transit theory when I was a student pilot. And, and the idea is this. Uh, so, you know, what our wings do is um, they they change the direction of the flow uh, as they they go as the wind goes across, uh, the air particles go across, they, you know, change direction because of that wing. And, uh, you know, with a cambered wing surface, uh, in other words, it's, it's curved on top, say, more than it is on the bottom. Um, the, the idea behind the equal transit theory is the following, that if you have two air molecules that uh, hit the wing, one is gonna go above the wing and one goes below the wing, the idea is that the one that goes across the top of the wing has to go faster in order to catch up with the one on the bottom. Um, and uh, it was Bernoulli who noticed the connection between if you have a faster airflow, you get a lower pressure environment. And so that that equal transit theory explains that, um, you know, that more rapid flow across the top of the wing. And I just thought, oh, that's that's kind of interesting. Uh, and then a couple of years later, I um, ordered a, I saw in the back of a magazine that University of Iowa had found a repository of these old smoke tunnel videos that were done in the 1950s. And if enough people were willing to cough up 150 bucks that they would commit them to DVD and they would send them to the, the folks who turned in the money. I thought, okay, well, this is worth it, worth the chance. So I sent 150 bucks and, and I got my, um, you know, I got my DVDs back in the mail and I put them in and these show the airflow across the top. You know, what they do is they color the flow uh, with, you know, uh, smoke particles and they pulsate it so that you can see two molecules at the front of the wing, one going above and one going uh, below. And uh, it's, it's very obvious that the flow across the top beats the crap out of the flow across the bottom. In fact, <laughs> those two air molecules will, will never see each other again. And I just thought, you know, as a mathematician, I get kind of frustrated because, you know, we want to help concepts be accessible to, um, you know, the, the learners, the students, but you can dumb something down to the point where it's not even true anymore. And that just kind of drives me crazy. I mean, at the end of the day, does it really matter for uh, a pilot to know that? Well, probably not, but you know, I just, 
I spend a lot of time looking at uh, material that's presented towards students and thinking, okay, that's bullshit. <laughs> it was just really annoying to me that uh, Lyft is complicated. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, but, but we don't have to make things untrue. In fact, I love those videos. In one of my articles for Pilot Magazine, I highlighted um, the, the University of Iowa videos. Uh, let me back up. So I wore out a couple sets of DVDs because I, I used them so much. I sent them to friends and I went to get another set and Iowa said uh, that they had sold out and they weren't going to print anymore. And I said, oh my gosh, you have to get these out. You have to get these out to the public. So I kind of needled them into putting them out on YouTube in their entirety. So it's 13 half hour episodes full of all these awesome smoke tunnel videos that flight instructors can use. So, you know, you don't have to come up with some BS theory. You can just say, look, look what the flow is like. You know, the flow across the top is much faster than it is uh, along the bottom. And that's why we get lift. I think that you've made a lot of great points there. And this idea about trying to dumb things down to make them not confusing. I would offer up the idea that nothing is more confusing to a student who doesn't know better than trying to reconcile a theory that isn't true. Now that's confusing. I agree with you completely. <laughs> so I really appreciate, and I really appreciate you prodding the University of Iowa. I've, I've started watching these videos. I'm definitely going to dig in um, a little bit more on that. And you included some of those videos uh, along with some of your own in a talk that you did with NAFI back in November of 2022. Uh, and I really encourage people to go check this out. It's their Mentor Live um, uh, series. NAFI is the National Association of Flight Instructors, for those who don't know. And the title was Teaching Control in the Pattern. And the focus of it was avoiding loss of control. So you had a few different sort of topics that you went into. And I thought that you in that in that uh, talk, you included some videos of your own airplane or own airplanes doing some uh, spins. And I thought that it kind of tied a nice bow around the smoke video or the smoke uh, tunnel videos, because now we get to see it on a real airplane in 21st century uh, clarity. But um, unfortunately, this is an audio only podcast, but can you describe just kind of the process of putting those videos together and what you what you learned and what we can glean from some of those. Sure. Yeah. So um, I had I teach spins and aerobatics in Suwannee, Tennessee, and I had one of my students. I was talking about the aerodynamics of spins and, you know, he asked me, you know, let's back up for a spin. So typically in a spin, it's your inside wing that's at a higher angle of attack you know, your outside wing has a lower angle of attack and that's it, it provides an imbalance of force and drag that uh, perpetuates that spinning motion. Uh, so, you know, whether they're both completely stalled or whether, you know, one is unstalled and the other is stalled, you know, that it's going to vary from plane to plane and, and such. And so he asked me, he said, so exactly what is it in your airplane? And I thought to myself, I don't know. I mean, so I thought, God, that's a great, that's, that's a great impetus to go get some uh, video. So it took me several days, but I, I got a bunch of these, uh, a bunch of rickrack from the local fabric store and uh, cut it up, 
uh, and taped it to my airplane. And you never really realize how big wings are until you try to wax them or what, until you try to put <laughs> scrapes on all of them. So I had my airplane, this my Cessna, I've got two airplanes. I had the Cessna just covered in um, uh, these little uh, streamers. And then I put videos, cameras on and went up and spun. And so to me, this is absolutely fascinating. So besides putting the, the little streamers, the tufting on the wings, I also put these uh, strings and cones. So I went to, you know, the local dollar store and got a lot of these, those little funnels that you might use in the kitchen or something like that. And I connected them to strings and tied them to the edges of my wingtips because you can see the vortex action. So when a wing is producing a lift, it means there's a pressure differential. And then what that means is at the end of the wing, there's an opportunity for that higher pressure air downstairs to seek the lower pressure environment upstairs. So you get a, a vortex action. So if a wing is lifting, uh, it's creating a vortex. So if you don't see a vortex, the wing isn't lifting. Okay, let's go back to my spinning video. Uh, in this video that I hope you all uh, go out and see, uh, on the NAFI video, and there's there's other repositories that have those videos as well. But um, if you if you look at the airplane in a developed spin, and this was about a 20 turn spin, so it was pretty pretty good and developed. Uh, you'll see that the inside wing is completely stalled because those the all of the tufts are just dancing, and when you see the the tufts dancing, that's uh, an indication that the separation bubble is over that part of the wing. So the inside wing is completely stalled and there is no vortex action at all on the inside wing. Uh, on the outside wing, interestingly, it's mostly stalled, but there's enough attached flow to create a vortex on the outside wing. So that's proof positive that, you know, in a spin, your inside wing is at a higher angle of attack than your outside wing. Um, so it just... I, I love those videos. It really gives you a feel for the aerodynamics of the spin. Uh, also, what I love about the video is as soon as you uh, push the yoke forward, push the stick forward, get that nose down, the flow reattaches immediately and you're out of the spin. So I love it showing uh, the fact that it shows the aerodynamics of the spin itself, but it shows the aerodynamics of the recovery as well. I agree wholeheartedly. I, I love those videos. And for this rusty flight instructor, uh, it really helped me to think about things I haven't thought about in a long time, frankly. Um, but also to um, learn things that I don't think I ever really fully absorbed, even when I was a student or even instructing. And one of those concepts was the difference between uh, slipping and skidding spins um and we can talk about that for sure but i did want to make mention uh as well to the uh, vortices portion of what you were uh talking about in the vortices portion of those videos because that relates directly to wake turbulence and right. can you, and so this is another myth that you have dispelled for people which is a bit of a theme in your work so can you talk a little bit about wake turbulence and that particular um myth that sometimes gets perpetuated yeah, you, you're probably getting the idea that I read all this stuff with my BS meter just like glaring. <laughs> and, and to a large extent, that's true that, you know, the mathematician in me is always asking, wait a minute, why is that true? Uh, and uh, or is it even true? 
So when I was reading as a student pilot, I, you know, I read the um, FAA's bit about, you know, when an airplane leaves the ground, uh, it starts to create uh, wake turbulence or, you know, wingtip vortices. And those vortices uh, go away when the airplane touches down. And I just thought to myself, that doesn't even make sense because, you know, at, at the beginning of our takeoff roll with no wind across the wings, uh, the wings are not lifting. But by the time you're barreling down that runway, those wings are starting to lift. And it's just that they can't necessarily support the aircraft. You're using the normal force of the ground until that's not necessary anymore at your rotation uh, speed. So uh, I just thought that doesn't make sense. And, but I had never seen any videos out about that. Uh, so that's another reason that I love those videos of the, um, with the uh, cones on the wingtips because I took multiple videos in both airplanes. I've got an acrobatic uh, Cessna, I've got an acrobatic Bonanza, um, and I have videos in both of those airplanes uh, barreling down the runway, and you can see very clearly that the vortices start long before the airplane leaves the ground, and they, uh, they continue after the airplane touches down. Now they're on your takeoff roll, they are growing in intensity uh, and on your landing rollout, they are waning in intensity, but they're still there and they can still be, um, you know, something that, that we want to avoid. It doesn't take a big airplane to create vortices that cause problems uh, for other airplanes. So I just think the FAA, FAA's idea of, uh, you know, let's try to imagine where they are. <laughs> let's, Let's try to imagine where they are on the runway complex um, and try to avoid them that way. And I just think that's dangerous. The, the best way to avoid uh, vortices is to just give them time to settle down. So allow enough time between operations. I think that's a great point. And as a matter of fact, I when I listened to that NAFI talk, I took that point right to heart. And on my next trip, I was flying into LAX. And we were on a visual approach and they said, you're following a 777 caution wake turbulence. And I reached up and I hit the timer because I just want to, I want to be keeping track. Um, uh, I remember maybe two or three years ago, I was flying into O'Hare and an Airbus, which is what I fly, went around because of wake turbulence. Uh, so even in big airplanes, uh, we're no more immune because we're following big airplanes. Um, right. There was that big accident in November of 2001, the Airbus that was following the, uh, I think it was a 747 out of New York. And, and you know, the co-pilot over-controlled uh, the, you know, used a little too aggressive uh, inputs for the rudder pedals. Uh, and of course, the tail came off that airplane, uh, but that was a wake turbulence event. They were trying to stay upright because of the wake turbulence and overstressed the airplane. And that that was just a tragic event. So and, you know, they they've we've seen in the last couple of years, I can tell you a handful of, of uh, accidents that look exactly like wake turbulence accidents. So, um, you know, we should all be mindful. And I, I love that. I, I love that story of you hitting the timer. Absolutely. So. Uh... One of, as you mentioned, one of the primary concerns with wake turbulence is upset. And we got a real gift a few years ago, unfortunately, due to tremendous loss of life. But we in the airlines got a great gift a few years ago in the form of extended envelope training. And I remember coming away from this training thinking, I cannot believe we've been flying jets for so many decades without this 
training. And I know that you got to participate in that training at UPS. And I was wondering if you could just speak to that experience and what did you take away from it? What's the same and what's different than in the GA world? Oh my gosh, it was amazing. So I had a, um, a UPS pilot who was a former military pilot. He and his son were doing uh, aerobatics with me for him as a refresher for his son as an uh, introduction. And he said, you know, he was telling me, he was singing the praises of the uh, upset training. He said, you know, you would love that. And I said, he said, you know, if I could arrange that, would you like to come up and, and do that? And you, know, you don't have to ask me twice. So he arranged it and I went to, up to Louisville to their amazingly beautiful um, SIM facility. And so I, I got to fly the 7-6 SIM uh, through their upset training course. So we had a really good ground briefing, uh, which I, I really enjoyed. And the fellow who had created their program came up with an acronym that, that I, I just love, and it, it really applies to all of us. So in, in any upset event, uh, his acronym was basically fly with a purpose, you know, PRPS, the first thing you're gonna do is to push. And then you're gonna roll and then you're going to do something with the power and then you're going to stabilize the situation so prps and those are in discrete movements and that's another thing that came out of that um, accident interestingly uh, i did aerobatics with the uh, flight some of the flight test pilots uh, at embraer uh, from brazil and the, it just turns out that this guy was actually on that accident investigation and he was saying for the Airbus at the time, uh, you know, the co-pilot uh, who was flying clearly gave uh, in rudder inputs that were too aggressive, but it was the airplane that uh, allowed him to do that. So they've modified uh, the controls of the Airbus to make it harder to give inputs like that. And by the way, that's the, that's the accident that redefined maneuvering speed. Uh, they, the FAA took them a few years to redefine what maneuvering speed was and to emphasize that we get one control deflection in one axis, uh, you know, as opposed to the definition that I had when I was learning to fly. Okay, back to the 7-6 sim. Uh, so how is it, it's very similar in a lot of ways to, you know, upsets in a small airplane. But one way that it was different is that um, in the sim itself, when I was uh, pulling back, uh, you know, he could stop the sim and he says, you know, you, you just overstressed the airplane. And I'm used to, you know, maybe pulling a little harder. Uh, you know, the limit load factor for the larger airplanes, like the ones that you fly, is uh, it's not 3.8 Gs, which is the limit load factor for the normal category airplane for the planes that I fly mostly. Uh, but as the airplane becomes heavier, that limit load factor goes down to 2.5 Gs. So I think I was pulling three Gs. <laughs> and so we had, to, <laughs> we had to stop and say, you know what, you're breaking our airplane. <laughs> so, uh, but then with a little bit of, you know, just retraining, uh, you know, I was, I was keeping the, um, uh, I was staying in the envelope uh, for load factors. So that was kind of cool too, to learn, you know, what I can't do and what I can't do in, um, in the airplane. Uh, but all in all, it, for most part, it, besides the limit load factor, it was actually pretty similar. 
That's really interesting. And I'm I'm really glad that you brought up the limit load factor portion because that was for me a surprising thing as well. It's really hard to get back to something resembling level flight without overstressing the airplane. And for what it's worth, uh, the couple of times I've already been through it, uh, I've seen that a couple of times. I won't I won't point any fingers whether it was me or the other guy, but uh, you know, I've seen it once or twice in the couple of times I've been through that training. So we have to practice it. Too. And as a matter of fact, I have that training again coming up next month. So I'm I'm primed. I'm I'm really excited to uh, get back in there. I'm That's really great. glad. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought up uh, two more things I wanted to mention. The <laughs> redefining of maneuvering speed. That was something that I found surprising when I went through that training. That you mm-hmm. get one, uh, essentially one input in one direction, and then uh, that maneuvering speed doesn't apply anymore. And I think that's a really important concept for us to all know. And I'm also really glad that you brought up the folks from Embraer because I heard you make mention of this in the Aviation News Talk podcast, of which you're a regular guest. And I do want to encourage everybody to go and check out that podcast. It is spectacular. And I've already listened to a couple of the episodes that you've been on. This is from episode 155, I believe that you mentioned this, but could you speak to that experience, um, actually teaching the flight test folks from Embraer and what they learned from you and maybe anything you might have picked up from them? Yeah, so I did uh, aerobatics um, with one of the test pilots who was actually over at the University of Tennessee Space Institute, which isn't too far from me, you know, and he really, really liked it. And uh, so he one of his colleagues who was a flight test engineer was coming over the following year and they were bringing the supervisor of flight testing with them so the following year i spun with the flight test engineer but all three of them sat in on my ground and which i absolutely love because you know i love learning from other people and virtually every time i teach spins or aerobatics somebody's coming in with a medical background somebody's coming in with you know i i speak with aerodynamicists you know i teach people who are physicists uh you know military pilots airline pilots uh you know it it runs the whole gamut and every one of those times i have a student it's an opportunity for me to learn from them too and i was absolutely in heaven so i was doing my ground with all three of them and it was really funny because I was showing my videos with the tufting and the cones and it, the supervisor said, oh, my gosh, who is funding this research? And I said, you know, it's me and 50 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, those cones are like at most 25 cents each or something. So that was actually really flattering. He they really, really loved the, the ground material because I really take a, a deep dive into the aerodynamics. I try to make it um, interesting by t- by using those videos and, and such, uh, the ones that I've produced and the ones that, say, Alexander Lippish did, some of the smoke tunnel videos. So I'm always on the lookout for really good videos um, to, to share with folks to make aerodynamics accessible. And obviously, I didn't need to make it accessible to them, but they hadn't seen some of those videos. And so they were really, um, you know, they were they appreciated them. Uh, so, and then I was discussing that maneuvering speed that you get one control uh, deflection in one axis. And that's when he said, oh yeah, I was on that, I was on that um, accident investigation. And so, wow, did, so we, 
we ended up stopping and, and he shared with me a lot about that investigation, which was fascinating. So, um, you know, I, I am just the luckiest person in the world. I get to, I, I just, I get to share my passion with other people and, you know, more often than not, I'm learning from them as well. So they were a lot of fun. Well, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for those ground lessons. In that vein, could you make the case for somebody investing the time, the money, and the energy in obtaining aerobatics training? Um, maybe especially if they're kind of a nervous person like I tend to be. Um, and then also, if a person were going to invest that time and effort into it, how would they go about preparing in a mindful way that puts them in a good position to get the most out of that training? Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer is yes, 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 yes. You know, um, so when I do aerobatics, you know, inside that is, is also an emergency maneuver course, you know, at the end, at the end, we're, we're going through various emergent emergency scenarios. Uh, but at, at first I'm talking about, you know, we're doing spins and aerobatics and there is virtue in being able to complete a checklist while the airplane is going straight up, uh, straight down at the ground at freeway speeds, uh, upside down, you know, nose low, nose high. It's just, it, there's a lot of virtue in, um, in not uh, freaking out when the airplane is in an unusual attitude. And it has served me well. It was the very first thing I did after I got my private. Uh, Bill Kirshner, uh, whom I mentioned earlier, he didn't have a um, medical for the last dozen years of his life. So I couldn't fly with him when he was, uh, when I was a student pilot. So my very first flight after I got uh, my private pilot certificate was, was aerobatics with Bill. And, um, and by the way, when I became a flight instructor, uh, that's when he was kind of slowing down and he knew I loved the aerobatics and everything. And, and he was the one who took me to the Space Institute. He's also the one who um, asked me to start teaching with him. So it's because of that, that I'm, I'm doing what I do today. I had never intended on doing any of this, but uh, you know, he helped me combine my math and flying and you know i need a little more excitement i think in my flying and, and flying upside down does the trick um so uh it it has served me so well and i'll tell you a few years ago i got a call from a fellow with whom i had done aerobatics and he was flying kind of a a heavier single i think it was like a turboprop i can't remember the the airplane type uh anymore but he said that he had been um in some pretty gusty conditions. He was flying IFR and ended up uh, being inverted uh, in, in IMC, you know, way up high, but nevertheless inverted. And he told me that his training with me kicked in. And, you know, he pushed, he rolled to upright, you know, he extracted himself from the situation. And, and he was, um, you know, you could tell that how much it meant to him because his family was in the back. He said he was just eternally grateful to have the right reactions kick in uh, in a situation like that, especially because his family was in the back of that airplane. Uh, and you know that one call is uh, has has made up for any bit of effort I ever spent with the FOIs, you know, and uh, which was not the most uh, fun for me, but. Uh, <laughs> 
you know, it, it was every bit of effort I spent becoming a flight instructor was it that day it was totally worth it. And I've had similar calls uh, over the years uh, like that as well. Just mostly it's people who just feel more confident in their everyday flying. Most people don't come to me because they want to thrill in an airplane. They come to me because they're afraid to stall an airplane. And, you know, the nice thing is they leave and then they'll tell me later, oh my gosh, I feel so much more confident in my everyday flying. I've had flight instructors come to me because they're afraid of what uh, a student might do to them in the airplane. I've had DPEs come to me because of a similar uh, concern about what a candidate will do. And by the way, as a DPE myself, I feel like I've seen it all <laughs> already. <laughs> but um, yeah, I you know, even if, you have no aspirations for, you know, becoming an airshow pilot or anything like that. Uh, just that bit of unusual attitude training, I think, reaps great rewards in confidence. Well, thank you very much for sharing that example and, and sharing your thoughts on that. I uh, I think that's a really beautiful um, analogy or example of the power of of teaching and the power of being a good student because that student of yours, um, you know, had a, had a good outcome because they took the training seriously and applied, applied what you taught them to do. And yeah. I think that's a really great place to start to wrap up. I do want to be uh, mindful of your time. And I guess just one more quick question before we wrap up with a couple of just really short um, things that we call our memory items. But and that is, do you have any current projects or anything that you're excited about right now? Anything on the horizon that you want people to know about? Yeah, so uh, I have way too many jobs. Uh, the good news is I love every one of them. So I, you know, I'm a full-time math professor, and teach aerobatics, I'm a DPE. I um, write the Flying Smart column for AOPA Pilot Magazine, and I love to engage with readers. So if anybody out there reads the magazine, uh, I always love to get uh, comments back. Uh, in, in applying my um, mathematical background toward projects in aviation, yeah, I, uh, I in fact, I just gave a, a math talk to a group of mathematicians in Boston last week. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. And what I ended up talking about was, uh, I'm sure you've heard of that 50-70 rule that by the time you're 50% down the runway, you should have 70% of your takeoff speed uh, in order to safely, um, uh, you know, avoid running off the runway and, and such. And, you know, math, that isn't, there's another case where I thought, okay, why is that true? And so I ended up sort of diving into the mathematics of that. And, you know, there, my, let me just say my BS meter blares. And I gave, uh, I gave the details to a mathematics audience uh, last week on why they, um, why the BS meter should be blaring. And uh, out of that, I'm gonna go speak on the same topic and others at the US Air Force Academy uh, later on this year. So that, that'll be fun. Um, but um, so I'm always working on projects like that. That project is going to turn into one of my column articles for the magazine uh, coming up this summer. Uh, but yeah, I probably don't need any more projects, uh, but I have fun with with all the ones that I do. Well, when that article comes out, I'm going to be keeping an eye on your website because I want to check it out. Okay. And uh, I'm assuming you'll link that on aceaerobaticschool.com where they can find links to all of your other uh, right. work. 
Um, just a couple quick uh, questions that we like to call our memory items here at the Pilot Network. And they're just short questions. The answers don't need to be short. The first is about mentors. Now, you've talked about Bill Kirshner, you've talked about Rich Renato and your math professor whose name is escaping me, but I will know it after. Yes. And I will, uh, I'll make sure to know that name after today because I'm, because <laughs> I'm going to go and research that too, because I've been having so much fun, but um, I know you've spoken to them already, but just any overarching lessons that any one of those folks or anyone else has taught you that you've always kind of carried in your pocket. Oh my gosh, now I could go on for a long time here, but um, you know, in terms of aviation, probably the, the person who made the biggest impact is cer certainly Bill Kirshner because I you know, flew out of the same airport uh, that he did. And I just learned so many things uh, from him and you know, just a couple, and I know this is just a small thing, but when I would be draining the uh, avgas out of the plane to check it for impurities and, and such, um, you know, I think one time I might have taken just a little bit. And he looked at me, he says, What's your, what is your life worth? And I thought, okay, his point was, fill that thing up. <laughs> you know, make sure you get a good look and make sure that there's no... Um, you know, water or impurities uh, in there. And that's just such a small thing. But when I'm doing a pre-flight, sometimes when I'm rushing through something, I say to myself, and I can hear his words in, in my head saying, what's your life worth? Okay, slow down, you know, do it right. Uh, he also taught me uh, teaching aerobatics that if you have a, uh, you should always have a six sack on board. Uh, but it's not enough to have it on board or even have it out of the wrapper. If you have not pre-blown air into that thing, <laughs> you have not done your job. So to this day, I can get a six sack on somebody's face feedback bag style in a nanosecond. <laughs> I wish I had had that skill when I was uh, playing a guy with a camera to take pictures of a bean plant in Iowa one time. Boy, I... <laughs> Caught me off guard. I should have pre-flighted my six sacks. <laughs> I'm definitely going to put that one in my pocket. Good. Are there any books that for you have been that you've either circled back on that you recommend on the regular that you gift on the regular or that you have particularly enjoyed? Okay. Yeah. So some of my favorite books, uh, Bill Kirshner has some great books. I love John D. Anderson's uh, books on, he has a number of books, but one is the history of aerodynamics. It's a little on the technical side, uh, but I love all of his books. In particular, that one I think is just a page turner if you're interested in the more technical aspects of, uh, of aviation. Of course, you know, Stick and Rudder uh, is a good one too. Um, gosh, I just had another one. Um, Boy, I had one that I really wanted to mention. <laughs> you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be so smart. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're going to you're going to wake up in bed tonight at about 1 a.m. and you're going to think of that book. So if you oh, don't, I did. I did remember it. Great. Yeah. One of my favorite um, biographies of the Wright brothers is called The Bishop's Boys. Uh, I think his name is Tom Crouch. I love that book. It's one of the biographies of the Wrights that again goes into a little more of the technical details of their work and in fact that's one of the reasons that my Cessna is named Wilbur is after I read that book I was so impressed with uh, the Wright brothers that I named one of my planes after Wilbur. So I am going to call an audible for this last question 
since you are a designated examiner, are there any common mistakes that you see or any topics that you would like to see students and or instructors handle differently? I will say that one thing that disappoints me as an examiner, especially because I get a front row seat to see how people land airplanes, people come in way too fast. And for all the that people fear, you know, the stalling and spinning in the pattern, which again, that's a serious thing. I don't want to diminish that at all. But in, in, in an attempt to address that, they come in way too fast. And then they get into problems like PIOs running off the end of the runway. Uh, so I think there are actually more problems that happen because people come in uh, too fast. I've probably given on the order of close to a thousand practical exams now, I think there was only once at most twice I had to tell somebody, you are too slow on final. Virtually, if I have any comments on airspeed on final, it the lion's share is, you are too fast. They're just too fast on final. And then they, they pay the price, like I say, eating up too much runway, you know, flat spotting tires, getting into that PIO situation. Uh, so if I if I could um, encourage folks to do one thing, it's to be very careful, you know, choose an airspeed for approach that is, you know, carefully choose that and then keep that within a knot. Well, I think that's great advice in every airplane and every mission. And I'm no mathematician, but only twice in a thousand check rides seems like a telling statistic. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, Catherine, I really appreciate your time. I think that's a great place to wrap up. We are definitely going to link to the NAFI talk and articles and aviation news talk and all these things that we mentioned in the show notes. And I want to encourage everybody to go out to aceaerobaticschool.com for more links to videos, articles, etc. Do you have any closing thoughts for our audience at all? No, I just really appreciate the opportunity. You know, I did a little bit of intel and listened to uh, some of your uh, podcasts. And I know that my interview sounds like kind of a departure from your uh, typical guests. So I appreciate uh, the invitation and I always love feedback. So if folks want to, uh, you know, comment or connect with me, I'm always willing to, to you know, connect back. Well, thanks again, and to everybody listening, keep the shiny side up, always pre-flight your sick sack, don't believe everything you read, and find your truth. We'll see you next time. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. <laughs>